how's everybody's pandemic going? How's year three? It's a little rough, I'm sure, but I'm happy to be back here behind the mic and giving you a brand new episode of People Are Wild. Now, my name is Kim, and I am your friendly neighborhood ER travel nurse of a host, and it's kind of taking me a little bit of time to re-familiarize myself with my own podcast. So please have mercy on me in some of these episodes that I'm still working out some of the audio kinks because I'm, of course, in a different location. And trust me, there's going to be a whole different episode regarding a little bit of my travel nurse adventures that have gone on since the last time you've heard from me. But today... I wanted to give you guys a little bit of an interview that I did with a very lovely guest about, well, I don't know, even sometime last year. She was incredible and took time out of her day. And again, I want to say, hey, how you doing? I hope you're staying safe. I hope you're doing everything you can to take care of yourself and your loved ones. And I hope you still believe in the good. And I appreciate you guys being patient with me and this podcast. Consider this a little bit of a soft reboot, if you will. I got new theme music and everything. Tell me what you think about it. And I hope that you enjoy this very insightful discussion. I don't really want to give away too much in the front part, and apologies again for the audio all the way around. When I did this interview, I was in another place with a different setup for recording, so it's cleaned up as best as it can be. And again, thanks. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoy it. All right. So if you've tuned in today, you probably know my name is Kim. I'm the host of People Are Wild. I have another interview. I know people are like, another interview, but I believe it's important to get viewpoints from people who have different expertise, different knowledge base, especially regarding some heavy topics like uh, end of life. So thanks to a great mutual friend here via the World Wide Web, via Twitter, I was connected with an individual that will go over something that I literally did not have any idea existed until probably about, I'm not even going to lie, two or three weeks ago. So if you want to introduce yourself, we'll go from there. Hi there. I am Liz Smith and I am on the East Coast and have been working in the field of end of life care as, I don't want to say a hobby because it isn't a hobby. Uh, It has not been my primary career but it is a path I feel very strongly drawn to. And so kind of the topic that we're talking about today is more specific towards death doula. And it's something that I honestly, like I said, did not know about until a few weeks ago. So I'm here to learn just as much as I think everybody that's listening probably is here to learn. So tell me a little bit about how you got involved with that, Liz. I was really fortunate I am by trade a social worker and had the opportunity to take a phenomenal class in death and dying in the fall semester of what was my final year in my master's program back in 2012. I took a death and dying class and it was brought up. There are people who assist those who are dying. The phrase doula was mentioned in the class, but there wasn't a lot of information It was definitely talked about. We all discussed how important it is. And it was seen more as someone who might vigil sit for individuals who were in hospice or perhaps they were dying in uh, an area where they didn't have friends or family to support them. And I was really intrigued by the idea because I had been a postpartum care and labor doula 25-ish years ago. And love doing that. And the idea of doing 
end of life support really appealed to me because I was very interested in end of life care. So in 2016, I heard that our local hospice, where I take CEUs as social workers, we are constantly doing continuing education credits. I took some amazing continuing education on end-of-life care, and then they mentioned that they do death doula training at one of our local hospices. We're very fortunate here in the state I live in to have some amazing hospices that cover a great part of the state. I took the classes in the midst of taking the death doula classes, I suffered a spontaneous carotid dissection, which it was the not the best afternoon. It happened, I was with a client at a social services agency and I had, my only symptom really was thinking I had a migraine in word, word salad. It ended up many hours later being diagnosed as something far more serious. And I was very fortunate to have great coworkers and a great boss who trundled me off to the ER and took care of things. So it delayed my finishing that training for a time. Luckily, I'm fine. But it did really actually, it scared me that I had been in the midst of some training to be with people as they died and sitting overnight in a, in a very busy inner city emergency room really reminds you that uh, we are all mortal and we are all going to die. And it paused my work for a bit, actually. And then I completed the training and it really is very focused, the training I took there are multiple trainings available, and I'm happy to give some more information for like Alua Arthur's uh, Going with Grace organization or Olivia Barham's um, Sacred Crossings organization. There are other trainings available, but the one I took was primarily geared toward people who were willing to volunteer for hospice and sit with those who were dying, perhaps as they waited for family members to arrive, or sadly, it is a truth that there are individuals who are disconnected or not able to connect with friends or family during that uh, final journey. And we were training to sit with them. I finished my training and decided I was ready to do this and then work. My work work got very, very hectic and I wasn't able to volunteer the way I had hoped. So fast forward to 2018, my incredibly dear friend and mentor found out she was dying. Uh, she was in her early eighties and she said to me, you want to do this. And I want to be the person you do this with. So she was in hospice care. She let her hospice nurse and hospice staff know that I was going to be this person and, uh, I couldn't be this person through hospice. So I did it. I did it as a gift of love and it ended up teaching me so many, many things about the process. And it was an incredible and transformative experience. And she passed in early August of 2018. So the thing I want to do with this too, in terms of having these discussions is trying to dispel a little bit about end of life. You know, people focus so much and, and I'm seeing this more and more, you know, working working as a nurse during this pandemic and, and everything, I'm seeing so much about how people, they really do focus in on like life, life aspects, right? We have all these plans for what we want to do with our life, but we don't necessarily really embrace the fact that there is end of life. And 
and what I'm trying to do with, with everything that I'm trying to interview people with is have people have these aspects so that we can really fully see that end of life can be as beautiful as life, right? I mean, that's part of the course of, of humanity is being able to just embrace it fully, even death. And having these discussions, I mean, did it change how you thought about your own end of life? Like, do you have this different, did it change anything for you? I guess is what I should say. That's tricky. I have had a very complex relationship with death. It was not something I was exposed to in humans. My family was very honest about the dying process in animals. My parents were always rescuing a hurt baby bunny or a little bird or a baby raccoon. And both of my parents felt it was very important to be very, very realistic that one of my earliest memories is watching my mother care for an injured baby bird and her saying, it's important. It feels safe when it dies. You should feel safe and warm and be clean when you die. You know, often as a child, you're told like, oh, they they went to a better place. There's a lot of euphemisms. And my parents did that more with people, but did not do it with animals. And I was very fortunate. I didn't really lose very many people when I was young. And being a death doula to me is as important as being a birth doula was when I did that, because we don't talk about death. And oddly, I mean, 20, people talk about birthing and their birth plans all the time now. 30 to 25 years ago, not as many people were. Not as many people entered that process with the idea that they would have a birth plan. And that was a very important thing for me as I had my oldest son, but it was also very important that I do that work. And the death process became incredibly important to me and realizing how we prepare and view and talk about that. I lost my mother suddenly in 1990. I was 23 when it happened or 22. I turned 23 later that year and she died at home. It was relatively peaceful, very sudden, but fairly peaceful. But realizing she was alone when that happened impacted me and really, I think, brought me to this place where when I felt able to really confront death and loss, I wanted to do so not just personally, but for others. And being a death doula means you confront it. It means you talk about it. It means you admit what paperwork you have or what song you'd really love to have played or your body care. We know more and more about the funeral industry thanks to the amazing work of like the Order of good, the Good Death and Caitlin Doty, but we don't talk about it. That's not what I do, <laughs> which which is a source of discomfort and embarrassment at times for my my husband and sons. We have very open conversations. We have for many years about this because it's I think if we talk about it we demystify it. And so many people have this very clinical view of death as though it happens to someone else, but it is the inevitability for all of us. And being a doula helps you embrace that because it focuses on you live until that moment. So how do you live with that knowledge? And for me, being a death doula, and I, I will be in the next year embarking on my training in death midwifery, 
how do you avoid that? I mean, how can you, how can we as a society really avoid that? And how do we, how do we deal with our own fears? Um, I took a phenomenal course, even though I am very death oriented. I have many nicknames among friends, you know, angel of death. And a lot of people joke that I'm very much more like the death portrayed in Terry Pratchett, very pragmatic. And uh, I tend to view things with a sense of goodwill and humor and acceptance about it. Thinking through what we have lived through as a society in the last year and how we have viewed death and sudden death and what I would call complicated grief because of alienated death, you know, losing people that we cannot see and cannot say goodbye to. And we can't embark on our society's rituals of death either. I think the, the role of death doula is and should rightfully be coming to the forefront to allow families to have these discussions. People may have been prepared to lose an, a much older relative over a prolonged illness where they could visit and could begin to make peace. People were not prepared to lose healthy 35-year-olds from a disease that made no sense to so many people. And the progress of the disease made no sense. You know, people would seem stable and then end up in the ICU very rapidly needing uh, very extensive end-of-life care. So from both a medical standpoint, because I'm a firm believer in extended and uh, enhanced palliative care, as well as extended and enhanced hospice care, I think we as a society need to realize that by being death avoidant, we are creating a lot of fear and anxiety about a very, very natural part of life. I agree with that a million times over. So for my own viewpoint, I didn't really experience any major loss until I was 20 and just shy, really just shy of my 21st birthday. And I pretty much unexpectedly lost my mom. But you know, that's, and I always, I deal with humor. I was in nursing school and, you know, maybe it's a little twisted, but I always tell people it's the dead parents club. It's the worst club to be in, but there's a lot of members in it and you're never alone. But the big thing was that, you know, she was doing good until she wasn't. And it was, that was the unexpected part. And my dad kind of grappled with making the decisions because as he always told me, you know, we didn't plan for her to go first. We planned for me, you know, statistically, I get it. You know, the life expectancy of a man in America is shorter than a woman, you know, statistically speaking, but life happens and death happens. And, you know, you can't predict the hour or the time that you do end up, you know, dying. So he wrestled with it for a while about, am I making the right choices on her behalf? And after that, you know, we are, <laughs> my family, we are big proponents of grief counseling and, and everything to that extent. But because of that, we started being more open with our discussions about end of life. I know a lot about how my dad wants to go, which is great because when the time comes, it, it'll be a source of comfort to know that in every decision I make, if he cannot make it, you know, and I am his, his uh, medical proxy there, uh, his power of attorney, I know it's what he would want. I don't necessarily, there's something beautiful in a way or a gift of having to take away that, that heavy burden when somebody already knows, you know, you're like, oh, I know what he would want in this situation. Let me do that for him. And I think there's a great, like I said, a, a beauty to that, that. And what better gift, you know, you can give to somebody in this big change in their life, um, losing a loved one, to be able to 
alleviate that decision making. So I, I agree, you know, there needs to be a shift towards being a little bit more open as a culture, especially Western culture, with talking about end of life decisions. So just with working in the ER, you know, you see people having to make decisions and it feels like they feel powerless. And some of it is probably due to the fact that they don't have these discussions with their loved ones. And I don't know, I don't know what, what would, I, I wrestle with like, what's the best way of telling people like to talk about death? You know, you don't want to just say it, but, but it's something that I've told a lot of my friends who are, you know, younger, especially because they're starting their families, you know, they have toddlers. I'm like, have the discussion now and, and continue to have it. It's not, it's not a one-time discussion. And I think maybe that's something that people don't realize is that it's okay to be vocal about changes towards what you want at end of life. That's totally valid and is encouraged. But I don't know. I don't know how to get through to some people in terms of having the discussion because people just, you bring it up and they're like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. Ooh, that's spooky. Do you ever get that kind of resistance? (laughs) All the time. All the time. For me, I have been privileged to be involved with and, and bear witness to a variety of people dying. And I say it's a privilege because I was included. They talked about it with me. And I have never viewed it as foolish. But I was also the kid that was like, ooh, a graveyard. Can we pull over and look at this? My own father... I tried for years to get him to talk to me about what do you want to... I I wanted him to talk to me, of course, about all the typical fatherly things of where's your paperwork? What do we do with... you know, What do you want done with your remains? That kind of thing. And my younger sister was diagnosed in spring of 2018 with with colon cancer. And uh, younger than me, very healthy, super great diet. Luckily... I love her dearly and she is fine. But my father and I had a very long day. I think it was like 15 hours as they did a very intensive uh, surgery on my sister. And I said, now you have to talk to me. And I had, I had my folder, my client folder, because I was doing a lot of this at work. I was doing geriatric social work. So I was doing a lot of end of life planning. And I got my dad to talk over like, where do you keep your documents? Where is this in your house? Which by the way, a lot of that he was not accurate on. Please be accurate when you're telling loved ones where your final paperwork is, by the way. But I said to him, no, what do you really want? And my father, my father ran a sideshow museum for over a decade and was an artist, very creative person. But I grew up with things in jars that you would see at sideshows and taxidermied animals and all sorts of this stuff. And my father just kept saying, I can't believe you want to talk about this. This is so gross. And I was like, from a man who's publicly displayed a two-headed calf, I I really am not getting this. And his museum actually did a show on Memento Mori, specifically hair art, which was done as a morning ritual. It was done in other venues as well, or as an artistic endeavor in the Victorian ages, but it was often done to preserve the hair of a loved one who had passed. done for children, done for women who were losing their fiance due to an extended illness. It was a beautiful art form. 
lovely displays. And I could not get my father to tell me, like, do you want an Episcopal funeral? Do you want a Viking funeral? Like, what do you want? But I trapped him in the hospital with me that day as we were sitting in the waiting area. And he ended up telling me. Now, some of what he asked for, and my apologies to anyone who knew my father, but some of what he asked for, I am sure, was just to get me to be quiet. For example, he insisted that at his funeral, we sing row, row, row your boat in rounds, which to my credit, I did at his end of life gathering. I and a bunch of my friends managed to pull that off for a couple hundred people. So my father's grand send off included a a fire eater and row, row, row your boat in rounds. So, but I knew, and you're right, it does give you a sense of control And grief is like standing in the ocean. You know it's the ocean. You know there's the shoreline, but you never can tell the size of the wave. And there's no predictability to it. And it ebbs and it flows. And having the pieces for that puzzle are very important. And they're not just important for your loved ones. They're important for the rituals of grief that our society doesn't make a ton of room for. You know, you're given three days of compassionate leave. Everyone expects you to have the funeral immediately and the memorial service is tagged along with that. And then I I think we as a society have made mistakes in that. I'm not saying we all should adopt Queen Victoria's wearing black for an entire year. However, there were very safe rituals for accepting death and loss that we as a society, we, we now extend life far beyond as a person who reads a great deal of stuff about medical ethics for end-of-life care, I believe we extend life beyond the point, experiential positivity, and do not in turn extend the grieving process or the cushion of societal support during the grieving process to reflect this. So having a doula, having discussions about end-of-life care and letting your family know what you desire It doesn't ensure you're going to get the death you plan because I think if you ask, and I'm sure when you have your meeting with the hospice nurse, people don't use hospice for long enough. Most people enter hospice with only days or or most a week or two remaining. They don't take advantage of all the wraparound support and um, knowledge that can be gained. So we as a society prolong life and rush death. And I think we need to to look at what we're doing with that, to be honest with you. If no one knows the actual day of their death, unless, heaven forbid, their loved one is in the hospital, is in a hospital setting, and there is a suspension of life-sustaining treatment. But we should be talking about it. My sons know exactly what I want. My sons, who I adore, have also declined to provide me with certain things that I want. I I very much want, wanted them to plan to bathe my body and anoint me with lavender oil and dress me in a shroud. I love my son so much, but they were like, ew, no. No, we don't want to touch your naked dead body. We'll hire somebody to do that. And I was a little shell-shocked, but it enabled us to have a conversation of What were they scared to touch my body? And they they were able to say they want to spend time with my body. They want to hold my hand. They wouldn't mind putting my favorite perfume on my wrists so they could smell it again on me. But they did not want to bathe me, didn't think that was a cool idea, and 
wanted me to know that that was not something they were comfortable getting on board with. And I needed to have that conversation because it let me know what, and again, they're 19 and 25 now, what are they comfortable with now? And we'll have that conversation again as I age and they, that may change and their life partners may influence those decisions. Their own life circumstances may, but we have been having these conversations for years and years and years now and not having them, I think would do them a disservice. We have been able to talk about preferences and organ donation and both my husband and I have somewhat specific requests about our bodily disposition. And we have found out what the boys are comfortable with. And in turn, we have found out what's important to the other. And we don't talk about that. It's seen as uncomfortable and people, we talk about buying a house and buying a car and having a baby and what are we gonna do when our child needs to go to kindergarten. Why don't we, as responsible adultier adults, have these conversations about what happens if I predecease you. What we make assumptions about end of life, and for me, the doula process, which honestly has benefited me so much, has been like a ticket to discuss this, to talk to that single friend and say, if something happens to you, how can I support you? To ask folks, do you want me to keep a copy of your will? Do you not have an attorney? Do you need to be referred to someone who can help you with your most, your medical decision-making? And beyond that, to start to talk about their fears and to start to talk about, do you want to be held? Do you want people with you? Do you, are you scared of dying in a hospital? Because again, there's some in- inevitabilities we are not going to be able to control. And there are some deaths that, that just will come, you know, that proverbial Acme piano drop on Wiley Coyote kind of thing. There are some things that are going to happen we cannot control at all. But death is inevitable for all of us. So if you cannot control the circumstances of your mortality, have a conversation, have a binder. I, ha- I had a client that made this phenomenal binder and it had all the contact information that anyone would need. And she felt fairly sure uh, as an older woman that she would possibly die alone uh, and or have her body discovered. This was a very common thing I heard a great deal when I was doing geriatric social work is what happens if I die alone? Well, she wrote down exactly what she wanted to have happen if heaven forbid the building manager found her or a neighbor found her and anyone could have pulled this binder out and followed her instructions and found out what funeral home she wanted who to contact immediately in her uh, extended family. And I thought it was such a gift to the people she would leave behind. And it gave her peace of mind. And we deprive ourselves of that. To me, we are depriving ourselves of that as a society. Death in many cultures is seen as, as another road, just like puberty is a road you take and marriage is a road you take and childbirth and childbearing is a road you take. And death is another road. It's, it's not something that you can avoid. So why wouldn't we talk about it is, is really where I sit on this is how can we not talk about this? I, you're saying everything that I'm thinking, <laughs> but truly because, and life experiences definitely shape you. So I feel like for me, you know, having 
had an unexpected loss so young in my life, that was crucial and paramount towards how I approach end of life discussions. Like it, it truly has been transformative in my whole entire family. And I, I tell people all the time, like have the talks now when you are healthy, when you are able to speak for yourself, you know, because it's it's something you don't leave unchecked on the list. You really can't. You can't just be like, oh, my partner will know what I want. Well, if you don't have the discussion, how do they know? It's kind of like, you know, when somebody goes out to dinner and they order something on your behalf and you're like, well, I don't want this. Well, if you didn't tell them, how would they know? You know, it's interesting how you trust people so much, but it's like, but if you don't have this communication, you're, you're going to be putting a disservice to yourself. So, you know, working in the ER, we see, we see a lot of people who their loved one comes in, they've been put on or not put on, but they have like a DNR, you know, sort of situation going on and it gets revoked or, you know, that, that family member, that's the proxy wants things done. And it, it breaks your heart as a provider because it causes, it causes this internal turmoil that I probably, I don't know if I should expound on it right here, but it's just, you know, when somebody has these wishes and then the person that they entrusted to carry out their wishes makes another decision, it, it causes this turmoil as a nurse, as a person providing health healthcare to this person, that you just feel like, am I doing what this person wanted me to do? And, and you hope that you are, but at the same time, you're like, oh, I'm not, but I am, but I'm not, but I am. And I feel like if we just have those discussions with people, it puts people a little bit more at ease for when the time comes. And and maybe, you know, talking about death and what to anticipate. I mean, I don't quite know what goes into being a death doula in terms of, do you talk to people about this is sometimes what can happen as a person, you know, starts to transition in terms of their breathing patterns? And you might they might see things or something like that. I mean, do you help family members? I know there's different aspects towards what you do, but I feel like if a person is a little bit unfamiliar with the process of what the body actually goes through, they get concerned about whether or not their loved one is in pain or suffering. And then it becomes that issue where they end up in our emergency room aspect and and we're doing all these things, but are we prolonging a life or are we prolonging a body? Like it, it becomes that sort of back and forth. So in terms of being the, the doula aspect, do you help family members sometimes with kind of this is what you can anticipate or what goes into that? Well, the individuals that I have assisted and answered questions for were, I do want to disclose this, aside from my own father who passed away in 2018, we're all involved with hospice. So they were getting information from hospice and then they would have questions, questions that they had felt embarrassed to ask the nurse. And hospice nurses are, they're amazing, amazing individuals. And they often have to relay a huge amount of information in a, in a relatively short amount of time. Because like I said, we, I don't feel that we, as, as of the American culture, take advantage of that wraparound care that's available in hospice. You know, often people enter hospice and it's days. I, I think the average hospice stay is something like seven days. So, 
people are processing a huge amount of information. And of course, it's shocking and your grief is mounting. And even if it's anticipatory grief that you've been dealing with because you've been dealing with a long-term, you know, you have a chronic illness, a, a individual with a chronic illness whose family was prepared, but please put quotes around prepared because you're never really truly prepared to lose a person. That That is part of what unites us in death is that even with experience, even with knowledge, it's shocking and it is like birthing that person into a place where you can't hold them or hug them any longer. So I think as a death doula, my responsibility is to answer questions. I, of course, do refer people back to, because I'm not trained as a nurse, as my father reminded me repeatedly, I, you are not a doctor, you are not a nurse. And he, he was exactly right in that. I, I am neither of those things. And if you have medical questions, but I think sometimes you hear something, but you don't really realize what it's going to mean. Cheney Stokes breathing, for example, you, you know, like intellectually, you understand that the breathing changes as the viscosity of the mucus changes. And you can talk about that in a clinical way. But when someone you love appears to be grimacing and is making what appears to be a struggle to breathe, how do you not call 911? You know, how do you not respond as it's a crisis instead of understanding that they are shedding a body? They're not coming into a damaged body. They are trying to leave a body that has served its purpose. So I do talk with people about that during COVID. I did some support to individuals who were vigil sitting, physically vigil sitting, and I offered information and the reality that the body often as the muscles relax, the, the body may, may produce urine, may produce um, a bowel movement, that sort of thing. And that that's, that is part of the dying process. That is, should you hide it and pretend it isn't happening? No, you want your loved one to be comfortable and kept clean. I really do adhere to my parents' viewpoint and watching my mother's hands around a very, very ill baby bird. And just thinking at the end of your life, everyone should be cradled like a tiny baby bird and things should be quiet and soft and clean and safe. So as a death doula, I do talk about that. And I do answer questions because some people will say, my friend wants to bring their child to say goodbye, but I'm afraid the child will be disturbed. And I advise people talk about that. If you're afraid your niece or nephew is going to be frightened by the changes in appearance, because there is a change, the, the skin tone changes, the elasticity of the skin changes, dying people look as though life is leaving them, which is exactly how they should look. It is a natural process. But if you are concerned about it, or if, as a family member, you're concerned about it, my advice is have that discussion. And have the discussion because I don't think sheltering children from the reality of loss is, I, I don't do it. I don't advise doing it, but your mileage may vary. And I am realistic about that. I also understand and fully respect that there is, is a death reluctant culturally, spiritually for many people. So I never want to expose an individual that I, I'm working with or consulting with to something that would be culturally insensitive. But I do want to stress that there are realities, particularly if you decide to care for your loved one at home. 
There are questions you should ask. Chuck's pads are God's gift. Uh, it really helps you keep your loved one clean and comfortable. Wipes, that sort of thing. And you should be able to ask those questions and say, what will I need? You know, how do you help someone who's actively dying? And, and we also have a Hollywood view of death. You know, active death seems to last about 17 minutes in most movies and all of that and on TV. And the dying process doesn't look like that. You can have someone, you don't often have people completely lucid to the end. You don't often have people who are openly communicating and um, all of that. Often there is a retreat within the body as they prepare to leave the body and really preparing family for that, really letting family know that they may be less responsive and they can still hear you and you can tell them how much you love them and all of that. But I, I'm also not a fan of leading people down the path of all will be resolved, that you in those final days will have a chance to apologize or be apologized to. And because I'm a social worker and have worked as a therapist, sometimes, unfortunately, there isn't closure in death. And people need to be realistic about that as well. Uh, people need to, to think through their own perception of what that might feel like and whether that could be traumatic for them. Because the chance to have full closure isn't realistic and isn't often physically possible. You may have decided that you're going to have a, a deathbed session with a parent who you have a complicated relationship with and they have slipped out of any lucidity whatsoever and you are not able to touch them in the way you had hoped you're not going to get their apology and a hug. So that's more of where I sit with it is how do we connect you to appropriate grief counseling? How do we connect you to support? How do you get the medical questions that you have? Particularly if you're talking about a chronic disease that might be inheritable. You know, are you, is this the death you're afraid of having? Is that a conversation we can have? Have you yourself thought about your end of life plans? What, what are your concerns? And death is inevitable, but it is much like every other inevitability about our human bodies. We don't know how, not everybody gets the same stomach flu. Not everybody's going to have the same death. Not everybody has the same style of childbirth. Not everybody has the same parenting approach. So allowing for individuality and allowing for questions is a lot of what I do. I give a lot of information and then I sit back and say, so what do you have questions about? And I was really blessed in working with my very beloved friend because we had months and months and months and she was having, she was so incredibly dynamic in life that it does not surprise me at all that she was dynamic and guided in her own death. But she wanted to have these conversations. She wanted to ask about what, what I thought it would be like. And again, I am not medically trained, but there were certain things I knew to anticipate about her emotionality, about the hallucinations that could occur, especially when you're talking about uh, oxygen, starvation, and things of that nature, which are a part for many people of the dying process. So when you are looking at the medical aspects, and I have chosen to, I do do a lot of reading and research so that I'm aware of what I should be looking for. But even within end-of-life work and end-of-life social work, should I steer my practice exclusively into that? 
death is, is a very thing. I, I have seen people live an extended time in hospice. I have seen others pass super, super quickly, even before final arrangements can be made. So there, it's a spectrum. Dying occurs on the same spectrum that living does. So one of the things I, I cannot say enough is that you have to be very factual. I, I don't use a lot of euphemisms. I, I take my cues from the individuals. If, if the dying individual is using a lot of euphemisms, but the family isn't, I do look at that. And I might even ask that, you know, some of the questions around that. And oftentimes you'll see the opposite. The dying person wants to talk about dying and the family doesn't. They talk about it as this very vague possibility versus something that's coming at them fairly quickly. So you want to take your cues from that. And you do want to be factual and realistic, but you never want to make predictions. You never want to say, I think it could be soon because you, I don't know. And I'm not trained. I do not have that medical training, but I am comfortable when the breathing has changed and I'm seeing synodic symptomology in the nail beds and stuff like that. I am comfortable telling them that's going to happen. If if someone is no longer eating or drinking, I can safely say that we are, you know, the time is closing, but I, I don't get overly specific. And some families really want you to say like, it's going to happen any minute. And some people want to hear that and others cannot hear that. So my feeling is, is I'm, my intention would be moving forward in this practice would be to be very, as the same as I did with postpartum care. A lot of women don't want to hear that they're going to feel like they need an ice pack for two weeks after they have undergone 17 hours of labor. A lot of women don't want to think about the reality of their below the waist care post baby, but you have to talk to people about that. Like where are your most comfortable underwear? What pants do you want to try and wear? Do you want to bother with pants? Should we make sure we're only stocking you with, you know, open gowns, that sort of thing. And Having those conversations, I think, helped me have these conversations. Dealing with women who thought they were going to have a fully perfect natural childbirth, who ended up having a high trauma, very deep tear that required a very large um, amount of stitching and whatnot, or a C-section. Having had to guide mothers through that, I think, prepared me for some of this because I got very good at having very hard conversations in a way that... I could be the person sort of standing in the eye of the hurricane with them and ask them questions of when things deviated. And for me, that moved forward into my work in end-of-life care because these are not easy conversations. And people will say, how do you stand being so solemn? And I will tell you, I am rarely highly solemn. Dying people laugh and have joy and the people who love them want to tell a funny story. And there can be a great deal of joy in saying goodbye to someone you love. And there are times where it's excruciatingly sad. And there are times where it is just magnetic in the joy and the love that's present. And then there's horrible moments where it's painful and awkward and embarrassing or shame gets involved. So it's a whole range of emotions that comes up at end of life. It's like sailing in a way you've got to be able to decide how much give you're going to give 
to the sails and, and what happens if the wind dies down or the wind comes up from another direction, you have to be able to go with it. And having a death doula as part of your death plan doesn't guarantee you're going to get the death you want, but it does guarantee you're going to have the conversations about that death is probably the fairest way to put it. So my question to you then is after, you know, you've helped out and you've been present and you've been there for a person, for their family, for their loved ones, how do you recharge yourself? Because at least even from my experience with being in the hospital side of things and dealing with uh, family members and loved ones who've lost somebody in a very abrupt way, especially with emergency room and critical care, there's a lot of abrupt loss. It takes a lot out of you, and it's kind of hard to get your brain to wrap around the fact that you have three other patients. You know, you're you're seeing other people. You have to be present for them just as much. So my question again is like, how do you recharge you? Because it it takes a lot out of a person. You know, to truly be present for somebody, you're holding space for them, and and I just wonder how that affects you and how you have to check in with yourself and be able to continue on doing what you are doing? Because for me and the role I have played so far, my hours are very controlled because my interactions have been completely voluntary at this point. This is a a chosen profession, but it is not my business, I think is the best way to put it. I choose my interactions. I I am able to put parentheses on my hours and my sleep and that sort of thing. So I would ask this of anyone who does social work, any mental health, any nursing or anything in the medical field is you have to have a self-care routine. The self-care routine that I have is to create space for myself. I do a lot of journaling and I do a lot of continuing education on this. Even knowing that this is the path I want to move my life towards, I took Mortal. Uh, it was a class uh, by Alua Arthur and Caitlin Doty. And I did it to check myself with things. I, I do check in. I have other folks who are internet friends, I guess is the best way to put it, but who I can reach out to and say, I had someone who called. They're looking for this information. For example, I don't do pediatric work. So I occasionally will have somebody say, oh my gosh, this is happening. And I don't do uh, neonatal work either. So how can I get support for people in that? So I I also, because this is not something I do as a profession, I, I am picking and choosing the families I'm interacting with. I am not sort of open for all. I am able to to call it. And I have taken breaks from it. My father died very suddenly and unfortunately had just the day before retracted his DNR. So I was in an ICU watching three rounds of very intensive CPR and he had retracted the DNR. So despite talking to the critical care team and telling them, this is not what I want. This is, you know, I am his medical power of attorney, but my dad had vocally retracted his DNR. So they had to complete it. Having been in that space, I had to stop doing end-of-life care for a time because I needed to recalibrate what that had done. 
to me and where I was. And with COVID, I had to really recalibrate, you know, how much support can I give? I'm not, I'm not going to go to anyone's home right now, but can I, could I do phone calls? Could I do Zoom? Like, what can I do to lend support? And I do not think being a death doula or working in hospice or being a death midwife is for everyone. Just like I don't think everyone who loves nursing is going to want to be an oncology nurse. I don't think everyone who does mental health work necessarily wants to work with, you know, people may want to do mental health work, but they don't want to do work in the foster care system. They may not want to do end of life care. I think being open to that and reminding yourself that you you cannot pour from an empty cup and and if any of my students hear this, they're all going to bang their head because I say that repeatedly to them. I'm currently an assistant professor and I teach in uh, a community college uh, human services program. And I regularly have students say, well, I would never want to work with the dying. And I said, everyone you work with is going to have death in their lives at some point. I teach classes primarily geared towards people with substance use disorder and I'm training people to become alcohol and drug counselors. So we talk about that because death is unfortunately often part of many people's journeys with substance use disorder and substance abuse. So, and we have seen that we have seen a huge uptick in overdose deaths and it is a reality and you do have to be able to talk about it. I teach an aging class for a university as well I am a facilitator for that class in aging. And I regularly have students say, I can't work with people who are dying. And I said, so you will never, I only want to work with teenagers. And I said, she will never have a teenager whose grandparents passed away or who lost a sibling because that's, it's not a reality. We have to talk about this and we have to educate our students to talk about this. And I teach that hand in hand with the fact that you have to know self-care. You should not be caring for other humans in any capacity if you yourself do not have self-care practice. I am a big fan of micro acts of self-care because I have a real life and I would love to go to a, you know, a spa and have people lay hot stones on my back and listen to soothing music. But I do that maybe once every two years. So that's not self-care. That's a treat. Self-care has to be micro practices that are instituted in your daily life that allow you to set appropriate boundaries for your work and your passions and are sustainable. If they're not sustainable, you're not going to keep doing them. So I am anyone who's listening to this, who is now going to send me Facebook messages to say, oh, so when are you going to start doing this? You can hush. But in all reality, if gardening is your thing, then garden. If cooking exotic jams and jellies is your thing, do that. If reading is your thing, do that. But you have to have something that you do that you can do to get away from it. And if when I went into this, I did this in anticipation of, you know, having an older parent, having older relatives, and realizing that I'm not going to be able to distance myself as a death doula when it's someone I love dearly. I was able to take that role as a friend, but there was, you know, she had a very loving and attentive daughter and a very large group of friends who were also very present. So my role in that was very clearly defined. Like I didn't have to blend. I could still be her friend. I could still be friends with her daughter and, and our mutual friends. And I could play a very specific set of roles as the death doula. Like what phone calls could I make? What information could I gather? So 
I think we should all talk about it. And I love death cafes. And I love when people have like death parties where they get people in to have discussions. I, I believe it's Australia, New Zealand, and they have parties where people get together and build their own coffins or decorate their coffins. And I think all of that's absolutely brilliant. Between that aspect of my personality and the fact that I worked for a very long time with um, newly returning citizens who had committed fairly serious crimes, my husband kind of dreads what I'll talk about <laughs> at parties. But in general, I believe that I'm drawn to this work because I will sit with you if you ask me what happens when the breathing changes. And I will sit with you when you wonder if, you know, Nana is going to scare her grandchild because her hand is now cold. I will sit with you and I will tell you my thoughts and I can give you articles about it. But the biggest thing is, is I'm going to bear witness. And that's, to me, that is one of the best roles of being a death doula is I'm there to bear witness to your process. You need research for that process. I will find you the research. You want to talk to people from your spiritual background about their views. I will make sure that you have individuals to talk to or your family does, especially for LGBTQ plus individuals. I think it's very, very important because of state laws and all of that. You don't want a family member usurping your final days. You don't want a death plan that is going to dead name you or worse yet, completely undo the life you are living and the integrity you have as a person. So People should sign things. People should have documents on record and people should make sure that if they are living the life they want, that they are going to die as much as possible, die the death that they also want. And that requires paperwork. It requires possibly involving an attorney at some stage. Your physician should know your wishes, particularly if you have a chronic health condition. You need to know what you want because if people are making decisions for you at the last minute, they have the burden of wondering if they failed your goal and they also have their own fears, own expectations, own concerns about their end of life that are going to end up broadcast onto your end of life and decisions will be made that people will carry with them that will complicate their grief, not to pathologize grief in any way, shape or form. And complicated grief is an actual sort of diagnostic viewpoint, but grief is complicated enough. And if people are weighing out the possibility that they failed you or let you down or you would be disappointed, that is a burden that will not heal for a very long time and can in turn influence familial and friend relationships for a very long time. So if you want to be proactive in your dying, consider... There are all these death-positive resources now. I've mentioned some of the names of people I admire greatly, and I can't say enough about being at this proactive. Please do not spend more time researching what kind of car you're going to buy and not have any of your end-of-life stuff nailed down. And I don't care if you're you know, 20 years old and think you're going to live forever making a note, having a discussion with your parents. If you are parents, please write this all down. Even if your children are too little to have the discussions with, write it down, give it to somebody trusted, make sure your wishes are known because it isn't just, do I have a DNR? It can, it can be layers. It's, do I accept feeding a feeding tube? Do I accept hydration? 
And you, you want to think about that. And you should ask your physician if you have questions about what this really means so that you can make the best and most appropriate medically informed decisions. But if you really know you want Father Joe from the parish you grew up in to, to preside, please, please let somebody know that so that if it's possible to have Father Joe come, that that's something your family can support for you. So I encourage people to embrace it. Your end of life should be as special and you should feel as loved as you have throughout your life at the end of your life. And part of that is having your needs and your wants and your hopes heard. And uh, that is something that a deaf professional can do. A deaf doula can help with that. And so I think that is an incredible way to end this very important discussion that we're having. I will make sure we'll make sure to put or to brainstorm here and get some resources. I'll make sure to put those in the show notes for anybody who's interested. But if there is anybody who wants to reach out, can they contact you directly, Liz? I am happy to talk to people. Like I said, I don't provide death doula training, but I, I would be happy to include my email for you. I'll send that to you. Yeah, for sure. That way, you know, you have a few different starting points for your own journey listening out there. Perhaps, you know, now you have this in your mind about the importance of having this discussion and starting to talk about it or even think about it. Thinking, having that thought in there, I mean, that's that's more so sometimes than some people really even consider. Just even thinking about it and then, you know, it, it can be a little overwhelming. So if you need help with kind of navigating the waters there, I'm going to try and provide as many resources as I can personally with getting getting people a little bit more clarity um, towards what they want to do and in terms of, you know, their discussions and everything. But thank you again, Liz, for taking time out of your day to talk about a very, very important subject. I have a feeling I'm going to connect with you a little bit later on for some other stuff because you mentioned working with more geriatric populations and there's a few things on my topics list that you might be paramount in helping me out with. <laughs> it's definitely a population that, just as an aside, it's definitely a population that in the ER, there's a lot more things happening that are really cool. You know, I'll just say this, as much as, you know, there are pediatricians out there, there are also providers and physicians that specialized in geriatric population. And it's interesting what's happening and how they're working towards integrating their practice with emergency room stuff that I've been able to observe. So yes, Liz, I will be linking up with you at a future date for sure. But again, thank you. That sounds great, Kim. Thank you. Take care.